Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, with this being Men's Health Awareness Month, I'll be chatting with Dr. Prithi Ramnachan, a GP in private practice in Durban, who has a special interest in sexual health. After the death of yet another friend from lack of condition and too much weight, actor Tim Pluman got together with a group of his friends and decided to get healthy. Well, the outcome of that is his book, Fitness for Old Farts, and I'll be chatting with Tim about his journey to a healthier lifestyle. This week is National Epilepsy Week, and this evening I'll be joined by Carrie Hopkins, a senior speech therapist at Whitfit Bank Hospital, and we'll be talking about epilepsy and speech therapy. And then we're on to technology. First, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mervyn Jacobson of Vitalab about the launch of the first ever embryoscope time-lapse system in Africa. And then to Christian DeZio, sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems, about the Lodox scanner. And this is a time-saving, full-body digital X-ray imaging device, which was developed right here in South Africa. And a reminder that if you need any information regarding Health Matters, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Health Matters on SAFM. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za. The National Arts Festival, 11 days of amazing, in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, this month is Men's Health Awareness Month, and I'm joined on the line this evening by Dr. Prithi Ramlachan, a GP in private practice in Durban, who's got a special interest in sexual health. Dr. Ramlachan, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello? Dr. Hi, oh, Hello, there you are. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, and thank you for having me. I really enjoy Men's Health Awareness Month because it's one month of the year when we can really insist that men start taking better care of themselves. It is the ideal opportunity, actually, that we have the month to heighten this awareness of preventable health problems, encourage men to get involved in early detection, and not only men, men and boys, because boys are the forerunners of men. I sometimes think that when boys are still young enough, their mothers make a point of looking after them, but when they get to sort of the late, later teen years and get into adulthood, when they have to now start taking care of themselves, a lot of men don't, unfortunately. Well, there are two phases to that problem or process. And the one is that mothers bring boys to the doctor. And in the end, the wives bring the husbands to the doctor or their partners to the doctor. And that is the process will always happen, that in between, we lose them in those golden years of uh, 18 to about 30, 35 before their wives drag them to the doctor and say, you need a checkup. We need to know what's happening here. What are the most important things, doctor, that men should be taking care of? I know we, we go on and on about having prostate checks and that sort of thing, but what else should they be looking out for? What should they be checking up on an annual basis? If you look at the process, one has to just look at this World Health Organization Commission study, which looked at the three causes of illness in the world that give rise to 50% of deaths, and that is the 3-4-50 principle. 
three causes, lack of physical activity, poor eating and smoking, give rise to four disease patterns, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and cancers. And that gives you 50% of deaths in the world. Now, if you look at that, those three preventable causes can cut down 50% of deaths in the world. So it's almost a case of changing your lifestyle rather than just having to run off to the... Not, not rather than, you should be going to the doctor for your annual checkup, but along with that, it should be a whole lifestyle change. Exactly, because once you do that, what happens is you start to introduce a whole new pattern of saying that I have now decided to take charge of my health. But why do we want that? We know that women visit 100% more likely to visit doctors than men for annual examinations. We know that men die younger than women. We know that men have more depression and suicide than women. We know that heart disease, cancer, injuries, stroke, HIV and AIDS and suicide commoner in men than they are in women. Now, we know these facts, but the fact is that men don't go for checkups. They don't, they don't believe it's man enough to go for that checkup. And therefore, when we have the Men's Health Month, we're encouraging men, companies, health organizations, practitioners, shopping centers, or any church group or religious group to encourage men to come forward and say, I need a checkup. Because if I do this checkup, I suddenly get an idea of who I am from a health point of view and what I can do to change my life. And simple things done like eating right, exercising more, and stopping smoking, suddenly brings a whole new process to help in men. Well, a little later in the program, I'm going to be speaking to actor Tim Pluman, who got to the point where he had lost yet another friend in his 50s. And, and as he says, it was basically due to heart failure resulting from lack of condition and too much weight. And this scared him silly, him and a whole lot of friends. And they got together and decided that they had to do something. And they went on a fitness regime and had changed their eating plan. And they're all looking absolutely fabulous now. But I think it took the scare of them losing all these friends who were dropping around them to make them suddenly wake up and think, I have to do something. It's called the street syndrome. The what syndrome? It's the street syndrome. Okay. When a man dies in the street from a heart attack at 48, every wife will take their husbands to the doctor the next day to be checked up. We don't really want to have to wait for something like that to happen because it could be happening to us. Exactly. And that is why initiatives that start to look at what the simple things, I mean, getting your cholesterol checked, getting your blood pressure checked, getting your sugar checked, looking at your waist circumference, looking at those processes that are simple, that give you an idea of what your health is, start to give you an idea that you can change your life just by doing that. And this great act by this group of Freeman and Get is a great move because suddenly they've shown that you can change your life by doing simple things. And they are very simple. It's not that easy to start sometimes, but once you get into the mode and you start seeing the changes, it was worth it when you, for, you know, having started in the first place. Once you start, you find that you get into this process of saying, more exercise, less junk food, we need to change this. I need to set a healthy example to me and my children and the people around me because when you start being healthy, you find it very infectious. And there's one infection that is good to have, and that is this infectious process 
of making other people healthy with you. You mentioned as part of all the group of things that men should be watching out for and, and taking charge of, you mentioned in, in that group of things, HIV and AIDS, a lot of these things as well, is a, a lot of it is taking responsibility for their own health. Men need to start taking responsibility for what is happening to them. When you don't do that, the consequences are dire, and that is where we lose so many young men. And in associated with that comes the fading sexual prowess that comes with it. Now, while we find that men might be sexually well-processed when they are younger, as they suddenly reach the 40s, they suddenly find this process happening, and they suddenly find themselves at a loss because a man who's not functioning sexually will get depressed. So if we look at the first triad of depression, sexual health, and cardiovascular disease, that is very closely interlinked. People who are depressed have more cardiovascular disease. People who are depressed have more sexual problems. People who are sexually deficient who have sexual problems get more depression. And people who have sexual difficulty are at risk for cardiovascular disease. It's a vicious cycle. It fits one, and then you sit in the other triad that says that if you have any cardiovascular risk factor or any modifiable illness, and that's leading to sexual dysfunction, and you've got low testosterone built into that, then you have another triad that's running in parallel with that, which now starts to link it all together to one fact, and that is cardiovascular disease as a central point that caused all the deaths. So your message for the men for Men's Health Awareness Month is literally go and get yourself checked. The initial checkup, what is the most important thing that they need to be checked for? I know we go on about prostate checks and everything else, but what is if they're just going off now, eventually they're thinking, well, maybe I should go and have something checked. What is the first thing that they should be having checked? Blood pressure, check your sugar level, check your cholesterol level, do your body mass index or just do your waist circumference. And once they all fit into the parameters, it's called knowing your numbers. You should know what your blood pressure should be as a normal individual, 120 over 80. Sugar, less than 6. Waist circumference, less than 90. In certain individuals, less than 92 or 88, depending on the group that you belong to. Looking at your cholesterol levels, cholesterol under 5 in normal individuals, not diabetics, etc. Once you start to look at those risk factors, because remember, the risk factors for all diseases are the same. Less physical activity. Are you doing 150 minutes a week of physical activity of whatever sort? And whether it is whatever you can do, even if you just step up and put the music on and dance 30 minutes a day for five days of the week, you are now starting a process of changing your body composition and getting rid of the fat that causes all the problems in us. Those are simple things. Then we look at the other aspects of giving up smoking, eating properly. And once you do that, these simple checks lead to much greater value. Prostate cancer, testicular cancer, heart and lung disease are sitting there. But we need to start with the simple things. And we do the simple things, we suddenly realize that we will be going so much further with men and men's survival. Well, Dr. Ramlachana, hopefully we've inspired some men to go off tomorrow for these checks, just to make a start at least. But thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. You're welcome, Carla. Dr. Prithi Ramlachana is a GP in private practice in Durban, and he has a special interest in sexual health. Health Matters with Karen Key.
Well, after the death of yet another friend in his 50s due to heart failure resulting from lack of condition and too much weight, Tim Pluman and a group of his friends formed a fellowship of old farts to ensure that the same doesn't happen to them. Well, his book, Fitness for Old Farts, is the outcome and proof that the program they followed really does work. Tim, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Karen. Hi, nice to speak to you. Well, just really what we were talking to the doctor just before you about exactly is what you discovered when your friends were dropping like flies all around you. Yeah. Well... You know, the point is that when you do have friends who die suddenly and that they're your same age, it kind of brings mortality to to your face, you know, and opens your eyes a bit wider. Yeah, I mean, at one point you were starting to, well, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, who's next? You know, it's sort of uh, quite a scary situation. Yeah, and I think what's really scary about it is when you, as I say in the book, when you're sitting around with friends that you've known for 30 years and more, and you don't see them aging because you see them so often, so that aging process is slow. And when these sudden deaths of friends happen and you kind of find yourself looking at your pals thinking, okay, so who's going to be next? Uh, the frightening point is you know that they're actually looking at you and thinking the same thing. Well, I have to say page 138 was my favorite page in the book. Page 138. Yes. Which, which page is that? Well, you, uh, it starts, there's two pictures of you in, in, on page 138. Ah, the, yes, I've just turned to it. The yeah. second, <laughs> you look 20 years younger, Tim. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal it's what happened to you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. So how did this get started? I mean, because your friends initially weren't that keen on, I mean, I think it was Mick. I laughed. I mean, this book, it, it's quite a serious book if you're reading this book. It gives you all the eating plan and the exercise plan, but it's also hysterically funny. And your friend Mick was really not all that keen. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you must know that Mick, uh, as it describes, you know, Mick really feels that a man over the 50, the most exercise a man over the age of 50 needs is to blink. You know, <laughs> that's his, his idea of that need. You know, they've been to a gym before and people are very frightened of things that they don't know. Um, and uh, I, I, what's so great about this whole, what I say about the book is it's a, it's a very funny book about a very serious subject. Uh, and for me, the, the, the most dramatic thing was seeing myself. Uh, seeing the development and what you can possibly do in 12 weeks, uh, which is the process of that this book lost. Obviously, you train on from then once you know. But it is a, it's a rejuvenating process. It, you, you get younger, uh, and not only in body, but in mind as well. It's an extraordinary process. You know, with weight training, resistance training, one of the things that I, I say to people, I'm doing a speech tomorrow morning at Finley's Breakfast, but one of the things I keep saying to guys, uh, older guys, is you must see there are things that begin to happen that you wouldn't expect. For example, your periphery vision gets better, which is an extraordinary thing, but it's a youthifying. So as you're getting a more muscle on and, and getting rid of that fat layer that's hanging around there like a duvet, you're, you're actually regressing the years physically uh, and mentally. Well, if anyone's sort of in doubt about whether they should start doing this plan, just get, get the book, turn to page 138, and just have a look <laughs> at the two pictures of Tim. You will be starting the plan tomorrow. <laughs> it, it's actually quite a phenomenal change. I actually can't get over it. But the book itself, what then prompted you to put it all down in a book? Well, as you know, having read the book, that, mm. uh, that it started with, with the death of our friend, Bill yes. Flynn, and, mm. and uh, it really w it was a perfect storm for me, because <clears throat> I had always been very fit uh, over the years, doing various shows, and of course, Defending the Caveman being the last one, the major big show that I'm doing, uh, and I needed to, to go to gym and stay strong, uh, and then um, I gave up smoking, uh, which I had done for 30 years, which was incredibly hard for me to do. It took enormous amounts of willpower from my wife to get me to give up smoking. And um, 
but giving up smoking meant that I had a license to eat whatever I wanted to to get rid of the, the, the smoking problem. Uh, and I was still going to gym at that stage, which was fine. But then I tore the meniscus in my left knee and had to go for an op and have the meniscus removed. So suddenly it was the perfect storm. I could eat whatever I liked to go up smoking, and I could do no exercise because of my, my knee. And I just ballooned. And, and as what happens with everybody, you'll know, if you stop something, it tends to go onto the back burner, and then I'll start next week. Well, no, it'll be next week, and then I'll you know, finally get to it. I ballooned, and I put on um, 10 kilos in, in no time at all. And it was at that precise point that uh, my friend, uh, Bill and Jonathan Rands, both, uh, both died, both aged 57. Uh, and so it was the perfect opportunity. You, you have to make a decision. I'm going to either do something about it, why well, not? And either decision is fine. You know, it's up to you. But if you decide to do something about it, then you've got to go the full hog. Um, so I was in that position where suddenly uh, I was out of shape. I needed to get back into shape. I had a bunch of pals who wanted to do the same thing and wanted my help to do it. And um, we said, I thought, well, you know, here's the perfect opportunity to help people, old farts like me, who don't have a clue and don't know what to do and and. And here's the opportunity to show them what can be done, how it's possible to get into shape. Uh, and, and hence the book came about. But you can't call yourself one of those people anymore, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think old fartness is a state of mind. I think being an old fart is actually uh, like a badge of honor. You know, there's a, it's, it's a great thing getting to be an old fart. You know, suddenly you don't have to care about certain things. Yeah, I know. You don't have to worry about modern music. I mean, really, it bores me to tears. Mm. Uh, and I don't, it doesn't matter that I don't worry about it. So it's a, it's a, it's a bonus. But the one thing, though, just as an, adv- an advisory, I think, before people start going on any sort of exercise regime, they should consult their doctor first. Well, that's what I say very strongly mm. in the book. I say is everything, this book will give you, hopefully, the motivation and the knowledge to do something positive. And the book reaches, you know, it goes over five different levels of fitness, so from very simple exercise to pretty complex stuff. But, uh, and it gives you all of the, uh, the diets, the foods, the recipes. There's some wonderful recipes in the book on the low GI diet, which is the diet that I'm on. Uh, and uh, it gives you a plan of how to select what weights to use for what machinery and shows you how to do it. So all of that is in the book. But what it says in every one of the guys, to every guy that was in the book or everybody who's ever talked to me about it, I say, go and check with your GP first, especially if you're over the age of 50. Go see your GP, have a, have a test, see what, what they think. And if you're capable of doing it, then do it. And interestingly, I mean, if you're wanting to get started the, the, with, with Mick, for example, you actually worked out a little plan for him to get him started. So you got him to do some really basic things, sort of walk to the end of the street and eventually by the end of the week, try and walk around the block. And, yeah. you know, very basic stuff, lifting a, um, a, a what is it, a plastic two liter bottle with, of water up to yeah. shoulder level. So really basic things just to kind of get him into the, the mindset that he was starting to do something. Well, you've got to understand that, 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 that doing exercise has to become a regular everyday event. It can't be I'll do it this week and then not do it again. So giving them some very basic examples. What I did for Mick was I said, look, just simply get up in the morning and drink a glass of water, then walk with determination to the corner of the street and back before coffee and breakfast and go a little bit further every day with the aim of getting around the block by the end of the week. I mean, that's pretty simple. Yeah, you know, perform at least five push-ups before lunch, aim to reach 10 by the end of the week. Perform at least five sit-ups before dinner, aim to reach 10 by the end of the week. 
then walk to the corner and back. I'd like this the morning one after dinner at night. And before you're going to bed, stand with your back pressed against the wall and using both hands, lift a two-liter bottle of water up to shoulder level and down 15 times. Relax, do it again, and relax and do it again three times. So try that for a week. And what it did for, for, for Mick was realize, of course, Mick, Mick didn't do it at all. He, he, managed, <laughs> he managed one walk, I think, or two walks. He, he managed to drink two liters of Coke and do one sit-up or something, you know. And blinked in between, you know, yeah. Which is just typically, typical of a lawyer. Mm. But, um, but the point being, what I was trying to do was show him that this has to become something that becomes part of your routine. And I stress strongly to guys uh, over the age of 50, if you can afford it, obviously, but it's vital Go to a gym. Don't think I'll do this at home because you won't. You'll do it on day one. By day four, you'll be going, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. But if you go to a gym, when you walk into a gym, the only thing you can do there is either sit and drink coffee or exercise. And most people will laugh if you sit and drink coffee, so you'll exercise. Where did all the ideas come from to put this together, the, the plans? Well, the, uh, four of the plans, four of the five plans are mine. Uh, you know, I've been training um, quite rigorously and uh, uh, from the age of about 39 um, when I suddenly realized that I needed to do I, I can remember so clearly getting off, off, off stage uh, and thinking I'm absolutely exhausted and I've got to do this again tomorrow and it was simply because a I was smoking way too much B I was eating entirely the wrong foods and see the only exercise I was getting on stage so you slowly, over time, your fitness levels begin to drop and drop and drop, and then they start paying off with aches, with pains, with pulled muscles, etc. And um, I realized at that age I had to do something about it. And never having been to a gym, I went and I got myself some trainers, I got myself some professional advice, I went to the doctor, went in and started training properly. And then I really took it seriously. So over the years, and I've trained for all sorts of different shows, you know, uh, having to be lean, having to, I had to put on weight for shows and then lose it. So I've got all those diets and all of the exercise programs that I've gathered over the years. I wrote down religiously because I, I train with a book. So I go and every exercise I do, I write down. I know there are some of us who do that. So over the years, I've gathered all of these, this information and these things. All of the programs, the four of the programs in the book are programs that I physically have done, and then I then um, put my friends onto at the various levels that they were. But the, the, the fifth program, the program that I did, um, was put together by uh, a professional trainer, Cliff Mason, one of the top trainers in the country. And um, he put this program together specifically for me, um, saying that the, <laughs> well, the other four said, if they're going to do it, because I've been to gym previously, I had to have a program that was twice as hard as theirs kind of idea. Uh, and uh, having put them on it, there was nothing I could say to, to persuade them that perhaps I should <laughs> do something less, <laughs> which in the long run I'm very grateful for, but at the time was very painful. Uh, and Cliff's program really is a program that is, um, is extreme. I now, for example, now at the age of, um, of 58, I will go and I'll do 40 sets of exercises like shoulders. I did shoulders today at gym, right? I did 40 sets of shoulder exercises plus 500 uh, ab crunches plus 20 minutes of cardio, and I did it all in 45 minutes. Right, so the rest of us are all hiding our heads in shame now, Tim. <laughs> I mean, really, you're making us feel really bad. 
But, uh, but honestly, if you're wanting to get started, Tim's book, Fitness for Old Farts, definitely worth a read. It'll have you laughing. Um, and that could even in itself be exercise. I think, was it Nick's wife, I think you said, who broke the Guinness <laughs> record for laughing? Yes. Um, and, and you said eventually she, she had to stop because her stomach muscles seized up. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we could maybe exercise our stomach muscles by laughing. Well, laughter, laughter is one of the – it's a, a, the best medicine, but B, it is an incredible exercise. Well, you read this book, you're going to definitely get some stomach muscle <laughs> exercise. So, and, and it's a wonderful time for us to be chatting about the book, Tim. In, in Men's Health Awareness Month because this is something we need men to be aware of. Absolutely. So um, how's it going so far? The book doing well? The book is doing very well at the moment. Um, I had uh, um, two places I've been in to see. I, I popped into, it's in exclusive books, and I went into the exclusive books in, in Cresta uh, and looked for the book, couldn't find it. So I went to the counter and said, where's my book? Fitness for old farts. You know, I don't see it on the shelf. <laughs> and they said, no, that's because it's sold out. And we reordered it, and we've sold out the reorder. So we've reordered a third time. And the other one, I went into the exclusive books at Hyde Park, and it is number nine on the bestsellers list. So wow. it's, doing, um, it's doing really well. I, I'm delighted because the more people, especially the more old farts that get this book, the better it is. I say in the book, you know, read the book. You'll, it'll, it'll be, you'll have a damn good laugh. And even if you're not going to do the exercise, it'll make a good coaster, you know. <laughs> No, they need to use the book. Hopefully all those people that have bought the book are using it and are starting out on their journey of better health this month. I certainly hope so. But, Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening and good luck with the rest of the sales of the book. My pleasure for joining you. Thanks very much for having me. Only a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Right Good night to you. Tim Pluman's book, Fitness for Old Farts, it's published by Random House Streck and it's available, well, pretty much, as Tim says, is being sold out at most of the stores. It's available, I would say, at most good bookstores. Well... I have three copies of a book for the first three callers. You can call in on 0892 10 2010. And the first three people to get through, well, there's a book for you. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, this week is National Epilepsy Week. I'm joined on the line now by Carrie Hopkins, who's got vast experience in the field of children with learning disabilities. She's in private practice and is also the senior speech therapist at the Vitbank Hospital. Carrie, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you, Karen, for having me on the show. Well, the thing about epilepsy, I mean, it's a popular misconception that epilepsy is usually accompanied by low intelligence, but that's definitely not the fact. No, it's not. Um, it's only a, major- um, a minority of children with seizures have a result of brain damage, and um, and they need special placement um, in both medical and educational um, needs, but that's not the not the general case in your majority of children that have epilepsy. Now, talk about epilepsy and speech therapy. Where does speech therapy fit in with epilepsy? Because a lot of people would understand therapy to be a transient um, event. It's a transient loss of function. People will have a seizure of some sort, but then they return to normal after the seizure has occurred. So they wouldn't expect there to be a need for speech therapy. Where does that come into it, Carrie? Um, you're right in saying that it is a transient um, loss of function, but if if it occurs more than once, it can cause permanent damage in in the area where communication um, is, and that could affect um, your speech and your language. Therefore, the child may need speech therapy. They may need, um, you know therapy to target their deficits in language as well as in their speech because they can present with many different types of disorders in communication and um, 
And so, and there's often some um, syndromes that are, are associated with with epilepsy. You get your Landau-Kleshner syndrome, you've got cerebral palsy, Lennox-Gestalt syndrome, as well as your temporal lobe epilepsy. So therefore, that's where we step in, is when we see that because of the epilepsy, speech is being affected. That's when we would see the children. Does the speech deficit, for want of a better term, is that different for children and adults? Um, Yes, it is, because... Epilepsy usually occurs in children or in people under the age of 20. And um, some people outgrow it, whereas some don't. And um, where in your children, sometimes they outgrow the disorder, whereas some don't. And the type of speech disorder they get, you only find it in children. You don't necessarily find it in adults, if that makes sense. Okay, so the, basically if, if an adult is ha- going to be having a speech deficit, it would be a different form to what a child would have. Yes, um, unless the epilepsy is running past, past the age of 20 and running into adulthood, then they could present with the speech disorder um, right through life, whereas in children, um, it could, it could, the out could outgrow it. Um, but usually it could be more or less the same, but some of the... Um, the um the the presentations of the speech can be slightly different and what about um, um anticonvulsants if if people are put onto medication does that have any impact on the speech it can um you know y- yes it, it can it can have um um um, it can affect the speech. And is this something, if they're having a speech problem with the, the seizures, is that something that lasts or does that come back to normal? Does it sort of reverse itself at any point? I'm not, I'm not very sure about a lot about the medication, but I think it's something that um, the parents could chat to the doctor about to find out is this um, just due to the medication or is this more the disorder? So um, that's something that they can chat to the doctor about. Now, I meant uh, in general for a child possibly who is having a speech um, problem with, and, and it's linked to the epilepsy. Is that something that is a constant? Is, is the speech problem something that can be reversed? Can the child actually get, get past that? Yes, it is. It is something that they can outgrow and get past if they're on the right medication. And that, um, you know, often it's things like the age of onset, the um, the type, the etiology. Those types of things can affect whether or not the the the, um, the problem will be reversible or not. So, what exactly do you do with with children that are diagnosed with epilepsy, Carrie? What is your role? Um, it depends on the extent of the of the epilepsy. Some children, as I said, you know, um, might not be presenting immediately with speech disorders. So it's more just monitoring them to make sure that they're on the right medication and that their development of speech is is okay. But if we come across a child that, you know, um, speech is affected due to epilepsy, we would then um, start therapy and um, target the areas of concern. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that you work a lot with uh, children with learning disabilities. Is this speech a, lo- a big part of that as well? Yes, it is. Um, epilepsy can affect children's le- um, or can um, affect children um, with learning 
oh, sorry, um, children with epilepsy can have learning dis- difficulties, and it's um, research has shown that up to 50% can um, have learning disabilities, um, and therefore, you know, you'd want to be targeting that as well, and making sure that if they need additional educational support, they're in the right school. Now, this is possibly something that's very difficult for for families to deal with. Um, how do you suggest that families deal with this? Um, I think that they must just, you know, be positive about the disorder. And, um, you know, because if they are showing a negative um, attitude towards the child, that can have big impacts um, psychologically on the child. So they just need to be, you know, positive um to the child, they should be emphasizing what the child can do, not rather not what they can't do. And they should just be treating the child like any other child in the family. And I think if they are finding it difficult to, to deal with, maybe seeking um, professional help to talk about the problems and seeing a way forward together as a family. I think a lot of the time as well, the children with with problems like epilepsy or with learning disabilities of any sort, <clears throat> excuse me, are sometimes ostracized. They, if they're not mainstream yes. schooled and they're in a, a specific type of school, they do tend to feel sort of on the on the fringe of society almost a lot of the time. Yes, absolutely. And it can, you know, it can affect their behavior as well. And sometimes they might act out or be aggressive. And it's not because of of the of the epilepsy. It's more because of the teasing or the bullying or the that um, you know the, that psychological um, issue around epilepsy. So it really, it, a lot of it is when I always look at situations like this. I think a lot of as parents, we should be educating our children on how to treat children who are possibly not the same as everybody else. That are slightly different to to them, but they need to be accepting and and inclusive. Absolutely. You know, I think children can be very accepting but very cruel at the same time. And I think as parents, you know, we have the the responsibility, as you said, to be teaching them how to accept and be welcoming of children that are, in a sense, not the same as them. And that should be something that we strive for as parents. You know, children are going to learn from us and we need to set a really good example, especially when it comes to something like this. So hopefully yes, we we can get the next generation of children will be hopefully better educated when it comes to dealing with people who aren't the same as them. Kerry, thank you very much for joining me on the show this evening and hopefully we've uh, given people some ideas of uh, what to expect and how to deal with certain issues. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Carrie Hopkins is in private practice and also the senior speech therapist at the Wittbank Hospital. For more information, you can contact the Speech Language Hearing Association on 0861-113-297 or take a look at www.saslha.co.za. And just to let you know, those three books, Tim Pluman's books, Fitness for Old Farts, have been given away. Um, to two men, Patrick Moodley and Gerald Adams, and one to Elaine Bosman. Hopefully, Elaine, it's for your husband. Um, and good luck. I hope you enjoy the books. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, it was recently, well, Vitalab recently announced the introduction of the first ever embryoscope time-lapse system to South Africa. It's a unique product which improves IVF outcomes. I'm joined now by Dr. Mervyn Jacobson, one of the original founding partners of Vitalab. Dr. Jacobson, good evening. Welcome to the show. And to you and your listeners, Corey. I'm reading about this uh, new embryoscope, quite an amazing machine. 
it's uh, it's going to hopefully improve our service very dramatically. So just explain how it works, because it actually changes the time, because normally the embryos are checked once a day, but now with this, it automatically checks every 20 minutes. What, what does that, why does that make such a big difference? Well, it's, it, yeah, well, you've, you've done it in a nutshell. One has to examine embryos on a regular basis to find out how they have progressed. And the tradition is to look at them on a daily basis, usually around the same time every day. So there is a fixed time um, of development. So we generally look at embryos every 24 hours. With this new system, we can observe them every 20 minutes. And without disturbing them, without changing their environment, without exposing them to different temperatures, to different lights, they are in a continuous, stable environment, and this dramatically improves how they develop on the first hand, and on the second, it allows us to observe them much more accurately, much more frequently, without interrupting them. Now, from what I was reading on the press release, it says that it's, it's set to increase the success rate of standard IV treatment by 20%. I mean, that's an enormous amount. Well, by up to, by mm. up to. And I think uh, one has to be very careful how one interprets this. Yes, it is an enormous amount. Um, if one assumes that the standard pregnancy rate in a well-selected group of people is between 35 and 40%, then that would go over 40% and be maybe as much as 45%. And this, although it doesn't seem significant from an IVF point of view, is a dramatic increase. And this technology is going to be fully operational by mid-June this year. Is it already up and running or about to be? It is up and running running. already, yes. Now, we mentioned Vitalab. Just talk to me a little bit about the work that you do at Vitalab generally. We're an exclusive infertility unit. The practitioners, their three partners, um, are all specialists in reproductive medicine. And the only work that we do is related to the evaluation and treatment of couples with fertility problems. And are you seeing an increase in this? When we have spoken before, Dr. Jacobson, I think you mentioned that, um, unfortunately, women are leaving it a little, well, they're not, but they just seem to be leaving it longer and later to start you having children. Well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this was one of the points you made then, was that women should, uh, we, we tend to leave it now until mid-30s, I think you said, and it's uh, becoming a problem. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, women have a, fairly fixed biological clock, and that clock ticks inexorably. And we know as women become less young, their fertility declines progressively and sometimes quite dramatically for all sorts of reasons, social, professional, uh, academic, uh, financial. Women are delaying having children and as a result are compromising themselves in terms of their ability to either achieve or maintain a pregnancy. But this isn't really going to change. I mean, the whole way of of, of the world these days, women are sort of, you know, developing their careers, first of all, and then once that's up and running, then deciding to have children later in life. And that's where you come in, I suppose. And and, and so they rightly should. But they may have to pay a significant price to achieve these ends. And that's where a fertility clinic like this comes in. Very definitely. I think it, it is our responsibility to make sure that people are aware Uh, Not that we want to deprive them of achieving their ambitions 
and, and obtaining their goals, but they must be aware that they may be compromising their fertility by delaying their childbearing. Now, something like the embryoscope, will this be used for every IVF um, treatment that you will be performing at Vital Lab? Definitely not. I think uh, initially uh, it is for selected people, and we're going to use it in those people for whom the potential is already there. I mean, to use it for a 40-year-old woman, for argument's sake, whose potential is poorer to try and improve that dramatically would be unreasonable. So we have to use it for younger patients or patients whose fertility is um, in better condition to try and maximize their opportunities of achieving a pregnancy. So it's not to say that if you pop along to Vitalab and you're wanting to undergo IVF treatment that automatically this embryoscope is going to be used? It's not. No, definitely not. There are certain patients for whom the embryoscope will not offer an advantage at all. So it's, ga- it's going to be by assessment, I would imagine. Without doubt, it has to be on an ad hoc, case-by-case, individual merit basis. The other thing about uh, infertility issues, though, Dr. Jacobson, it's it's one of those things that also I think we've discussed before, is that women always feel it's them, and it's it's not necessarily only the woman who might have a, a problem with fertility, and could also be the man, and therefore they both need to be checked. You're absolutely correct. Infertility in the majority of instances is a couple's problem and the couple has to be evaluated because the couple has to share the problem. Uh, It makes no difference if it's a male factor or a female factor. They share the problem. The problem means that they're going to have a a difficulty in achieving what they wish to have a child and it makes no difference if it's a sperm problem. It's the wife's problem and if it's an egg problem, it's the husband's problem. So we choose preferably to evaluate couples. Uh, the distribution of these various issues is approximately um, about 30% uh, female and about 40% male and about 20% um, probably mixed. And one of the, I think, the most difficult questions that I think people who are in the situation always face is what, what are the chances, how high are the probabilities with IVF of actually falling pregnant? And it's obviously a very difficult thing to ask. Uh, I'm pleased you asked the question because it's almost impossible to answer. I think it would depend very much on why a couple requires IVF. If, for argument's sake, it is a, a young woman who's got damaged tubes who is otherwise well and healthy with a normal fertile partner, her chances of achieving a pregnancy are extremely good and probably uh, reasonable in terms of about 45%. Uh, If, for argument's sake, the woman is older, and here's the example of age playing a significant factor, a 41 or a 42-year-old woman in exactly the same situation, otherwise well with blocked tubes, with a fertile partner, her chances of achieving a pregnancy are no better than 30 or 35%. And we've been discussing quite a bit on the, the last few months about endometriosis, which is another huge yes. problem for women. Massive, massive. And those we discussed then, I think, when I was chatting to the doctors about that, that um, you know there is now a new medication on the market, but you can't, it, it in effect works like a contraceptive pill, but it helps for the endometriosis. So you, you kind of, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Basically. Very definitely. I, I think our attitude towards the significance of, embryo, of endometriosis is changing. And one is starting to question a cause and effect relationship 
as opposed to an association. I think endometriosis might be something that is more frequently associated with infertility, but not necessarily a cause of infertility, because there is a large number of women who have endometriosis who don't have any compromise of their fertility at all. So it's just, it's, it's, almost, it's again, a case-by-case case basis. Absolutely. So no there's question. There's no, well, if I have this, then that's going to be the outcome. It, it, it doesn't work like that. It depends on no, your exact no. case. It's every, everybody's different. So if somebody says that you have endometriosis, all is not lost necessarily. Definitely not. You're absolutely correct. So the, oh, just to get back to the embryoscope, rather exciting news. And this, the only one in Africa at the moment, this embryoscope. Uh, to our knowledge, yeah, it was commissioned last week. Uh, the company, which is uh, in Denmark, sent out their technicians to install it and to calibrate and equilibrate it for us and commission it for us. And uh, yes, it is the only one in the continent at the moment. It's rather exciting. And then just to reiterate again that it's not for everybody. So if you're going off to Vital Lab, it's not automatic that this is something that will be used for you. It depends on your situation and you will be assessed by the staff at the clinic. Am I correct? correct. Uh, yes, I am correct. Absolutely. Okay, yes, I, just want, I, I just want to give people false hope that this was something that everybody would now have access to because it isn't. I'm very pleased and I appreciate that perspective. Well, Dr. Jacobson, well done. This sounds like a wonderful new addition to Vitalab and hopefully there will be lots of very many more happy couples out there. But thank you so much for your time and joining me this evening. It's a great pleasure and thank you for inviting me, Cora. Nice to speak to you again. Thanks so much. Dr. Mervyn Jacobson is one of the original founding partners of Vitalab and we were talking there about the introduction of the embryoscope. Well, for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.vitalab, that's V-I-T-A-Lab, vitalab.com. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, I was really proud to be a South African when I watched last week's episode of Grey's Anatomy on DSTV. Why? Well, the entire episode revolved around a new machine they had called a Lodox. Now, the Lodox scanner is a time-saving full-body digital X-ray imaging device, rather a mouthful, and it was developed right here in Johannesburg in Santon, in fact, in South Africa. Well, I'm joined now by Christian Dezio. He's the sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems. Christian, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corin, and good evening to your listeners. I was very proud to be a South African when I watched the show last week. I must say, it was rather amazing. But the thing is, I mean, we've only just really hearing about it now, but it's been around for, what, about 11 years now? Correct. So Lodox Systems has been around for just over 10 years. Um, and we're actually now on the fourth iteration of our original development, which is called the Exemplar DR now. Yeah. Now, the most that I know about this thing is from having watched the, the episode of Grey's Anatomy. It, I mean, they were all terribly excited, as was I, and it looked amazing. 13 seconds to do a full-body scan. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So the excitement, the, the reason for the excitement is quite, is quite right. Um, what, what the system allows a trauma team to do is to, once they get a patient inside the trauma unit, is to very, very quickly, as you mentioned, 30, 13 seconds, get a full body picture of exactly what's going on, head to toe. What do we do first? Do we tackle the lungs that potentially have collapsed? Do we have massive um, fractures in the femurs, etc.? So, yeah, a, a, trauma, a trauma team will be very excited about this in real life and on Grey's Anatomy, in fact. <laughs> well, I was looking through the information as well. There are a number of them already in hospitals around South Africa. Yeah, that's correct. There's 11 hospitals in South Africa that have it. Some of the very big tertiary hospitals, um, and, and there I'm including Baraguanas, uh, Charlotte Macheke, Curtis Gear down in Cape Town. So, so 
big places get that see lots of trauma, um, they're using it currently now, yeah. And the Red Cross Children's Hospital, I see, uh, has one as well. Yes, mm. Absolutely, So this is actually rather exciting. Why do you think it's suddenly becoming, a, we, we're becoming aware now? Why, why do you think they're suddenly focused on this, on, on international television? Um, the reason that I think as South Africans, we're, we're, we've sort of tacked on and latched onto the story so, so, so well is because we tend to get a lot of bad news, I think, in our yeah, country. Yeah, we do. So, when a good story comes along, we really do rally behind it and, um, you know, uh, take, take it personally and, and make it our own. The reason that we were on Grays is because we actually have an installation at LA County Hospital. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so when they were writing in their script that um, they're going to redo the emergency room, they, they went to LA County and tried to get a view from them as to what they should include in it. And the clinicians there said, look, if you don't have a low-doc scanner on your emergency room, then unfortunately it's not a proper emergency room. <laughs> well, that was great. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and obviously that's then gone into popular culture. If, if you had to speak to some of the trauma doctors in South Africa, they would a while ago be able to give you a very good review on the low-doc. But as the lay public, I think um, the Greys afforded us an, an excellent opportunity to sort of say, we're here, we're South African, and, and we're making ways in the world. Well, I mean, I, as I said, I was terribly proud to be South African, mm. and, and I can now go around saying the word Lodox and know oh, yeah. exactly what I'm talking about, which is amazing. <laughs> it's, become a, it's become a verb now. You, you Lodox someone. Pretty much. I mean, it's, inc- <laughs> it's actually incredible. But what, what fascinates me is that it, what more wasn't made of it, or maybe it wasn't, I just missed it, but more wasn't made of this amazing technology when it was first developed 11 years ago. Correct, yeah. So, so our, our marketing essentially has been, as I said, to the, the trauma clinicians, mm. um, the, the lay public, we haven't necessarily sort of promoted it to. Um, we're glad to be in the public eye now because I think that the people now realize that there is something that in our trauma units ultimately is going to help the trauma team, but at the same time is very good for a well, very good, is, is a lot more safe for a patient because of the very low dose. So, yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask yes. you about. Now, the le- levels of radiation are much lower with this. Absolutely. Why, you're, you're why looking, is that? Well, because it's essentially the way that the, the x-rays are produced. Um, to cut a long story short and, and not to get too technical, um, we're able to produce a very, very thin beam of x-rays, which essentially scans over the patient, um, and that allows us to use a much lower dose because it tends to penetrate the body and a lot more of the, of the x-rays are picked up by a detector. So it, it enables us to use much lower doses and still get an excellent image quality because, I mean, if you are using lower doses, the last thing you want is not to be able to see anything. Now, just to refer back to my sort of educational episode of Grey's Anatomy the other day, um, they, they made the comment, two comments. One was that they could use it for pregnant people. That was a pregnant woman. That was the first thing. And second, the other thing they said was if they had to take that in a number of x-rays that they would have had to have taken to see all the injuries on this one particular person, it, they would have taken them hours because it would have been at least five or six or even ten, I can't yep. remember now, x-rays, and you got that whole thing in 13 seconds. Correct. So to deal with the pregnant, uh, the, the pregnant ladies and children, as you mentioned, we have an installation in Red Cross Children's mm. Hospital down in Cape Town. So with a child and with a pregnant lady, the lower dose you can expose them to in a trauma situation where you have to, um, you really are doing a world of good because if, if, if a pregnant lady is, is out of trauma units and you have to get imaging information, you're probably going to have to do a scan at some stage. So if you can do it at a lower dose, you're doing the, the unborn fetus a lot of good and the same thing with a developing child. So that's, that's I think, why they were really excited regarding the pregnant ladies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Regarding the number of scans that it would take you, if, if you take a normal X-ray system, 
what you're essentially doing is almost taking a picture, a snapshot of a certain area. I think we've, we've all been into, mm. you know, we fall off a bike or we get into some kind of a, an accident and the arm hurts. So essentially what happens is you're put into a room where they put a plate underneath your arm. The lady then adjusts you. Uh, she walks behind her lead screen and takes what is almost a snapshot of that specific area. And that's essentially what you would have to do in a trauma situation. The problem with a trauma situation is that you're dealing with a much larger area. So as the doctor said on Grey's Anatomy, you would probably would have had to take five, six, in some cases maybe ten images, and then piece them together and say, what's the clinical picture we're seeing here? Do we have massive fractures? Do we have issues in the pelvis? Do we have potentially collapsed lungs? So, yeah, when you can take all of that information on a 13-second full-body scan and you can make your top-to-toe diagnosis of what you're going to tackle first, second, third, up to 10th, you're not only saving time, but you're able to provide that patient with a lot better clinical um, um, picture, ultimately. So the bed that they would lie on, is that entire bed sort of like the plate? Yes, yes. Yeah. So no, well, no, sorry, that, that's your carbon fiber table. Um, if, if, if you had to see a picture of our machine, what you have is a C-arm, which is pretty much anchored to a wall, and it moves backwards and forwards on that wall. The top part of it is where your x-rays are produced that shoot down through the patient. The bottom part of that seat, which goes underneath the table, that's the detector. So it's almost like a moving plate, if you will. You're, you're sending x-rays and, and detecting them instantaneously as you're moving over the body from top to toe. So there's no stationary plate there. Amazing technology. Yeah, yeah. And it comes from South Africa. Isn't that just fabulous? Yeah, I don't know if you know the story. It actually was, it was developed on the De Beers diamond mines. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yeah. Just so, for the listeners, just explain yeah. briefly how that happened. So in the De Beers, essentially on the diamond mines, they, they suspected that potentially they were losing diamonds. People were either swallowing them or putting them in orifices. And what they needed to do is they commissioned a team to say, look, obviously we need to be able to look into these people um, and x-rays is the logical way of doing that. So they said, we have to do it very quickly because you've got hundreds of miners coming off a, a shift at a time. So that was one prerequisite. Second prerequisite was to be able to do it low dose because the last thing you want to do is to expose those miners to a high dosage every single day or potentially sometimes more than once a day. But very importantly, it also had to be able to see tiny, tiny diamonds within the human body. So the image quality had to be very good. So they put together an upright scanner um, called the Scanex, which is still in use today, actually, on the diamond mines. Um, and while they were doing um, <clears throat> some of the testing in, at Hurtuskir, they actually then sort of said, but hold on a second. If we put that, um, that, that concept horizontally, do we not then have a medical use for it? Um, so it, it, it really is. It's a story of South African innovation, of our ability to, to sort of think outside the box and produce something which ultimately now the world accepts, not just in South Africa. Well, if you look back on the list of, of inventions and discoveries that we've made and done here in this country, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And this is yet another amazing innovation. Christian, thank you very much indeed for spending some time and chatting with me about this on the show this evening. I do appreciate your time. Lauren, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Good night Have to you. Have a great evening. Good Bye. night. Christian Dezio is the sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's Lodox, L-O-D-O-X, Lodox. Dot com.
Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, if you also listen to me on a Monday evening at Law on SAFM, have a look at the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. There's lots of interesting documents that are now available if you'd like to have those. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.